Welcome to episode 18 of the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. In this episode, Dr. Molly Estes interviews Dr. Crafton Schreier on her journey through emergency medicine so far and on what she enjoys doing outside of the emergency department. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Women's Wisdom Podcast. My name is Molly Estes. I'm clinical faculty at Loma Linda University in Southern California. And today I am so excited to welcome to the show one of my good friends, Crafton Schreyer. She's academic faculty at Temple University. Crafton, thanks for being here with us. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited at the opportunity. So right before we started recording this particular session, I found out something fascinating that I am desperate for everybody out there who listens to know about you. Um, world champion competitor for dragon boat racing. What? You heard correctly. <laughs> yeah. I, I need all the details about this. Um, first, for anyone, including myself, who might be semi-ignorant into the sport of dragon boating, boating, is it a verb? It might be. Um, what exactly is dragon boat racing? Uh, so great question. I myself didn't even know till I uh, started residency at Temple, um, but I describe dragon boat as kind of a big canoe. So picture a 10 person, 10 seater canoe uh, that's two people wide. So every seat has a seat partner. So there's two people per seat, so 20 total. And then there's someone at the front of the boat who's drumming, keeping time. And then someone at the back of the boat who's steering, kind of using a giant oar. Uh, and uh, there are teams from all over the country, all over the world uh, that paddle and race uh, different distances. So anywhere from a hundred meter sprint to a 2000 meter uh, endurance type race. Wow, that's incredible and can't really say that I knew that this existed as such a prolific sporting event. So of course begs the question, um, how did you get involved in this? Uh, so there's a, so Philly is actually a hotbed for Dragon Boat, uh, thanks in large part to uh, my coach slash chairman, uh, Bob McNamara. Uh, <laughs> Single-handedly pushing it on. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's basically the person who founded Dragon Boat in the United States, fun fact. <laughs> Um, but uh, there's a regatta every year in Philadelphia and Temple puts a team together. So the residents and the nurses and the faculty um, put together a boat for this uh, local regatta. So when I was a resident, actually when I was an intern, uh, you know, I've always been an athlete. Um, I played softball and field hockey uh, through college. Um, so I was excited to the opportunity to try something new and they stay active. So I signed up for this local regatta um, and then after the initial competition, you know, Bob said to me, Hey, you're pretty good at this. And I said, Oh, okay. I didn't realize <laughs> I was good. Um, it took a couple of years for me to get a little bit more involved because the schedule, the practice schedule is actually quite demanding <laughs> the, uh, Philadelphia team. Uh, I, uh, I want to hear that conversation between you and your chiefs. So, uh, I've actually got this dragon boat practice. Yeah, well, it's easy when your chairman's the head of the dragon boat because he prioritizes that over work. <laughs> but really, they you practice at uh, four, four or five forty-five in the morning, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then there's a practice on Saturday and one on Sunday. So you don't have to be at all of them, but obviously you need to make most of them. So um, that was untenable during residency. But once I became faculty and I had a little bit of a lighter load and a little bit more control over my schedule, I could really commit to uh, the practice. Uh, regimen. So at that point, I joined the Philadelphia team, uh, trained with them 
for a year, maybe two, or the, I can't remember the timeline. <laughs> Uh, and then I uh, tried out for the national team um, and was fortunate enough to make the women's and the mixed team uh, for the US. Um, so then we ended up competing uh, in Kunming, China. Um, yep, back in, in uh, 2017. Uh, and then uh, went to Thailand in 2019. The, I, I, I'm practically speechless. Like, okay, so, you know, pretty pretty freaking awesome er doctor and vt dubs world competitor in dragon boat racing um wow that is absolutely incredible so have you have you hung up your oar paddle what is it called it's a paddle and uh, <laughs> yes i have hung it up for the time being um covid put a little bit of a damper on dragon boat um and then an even bigger damper is the fact that my husband and i are expecting our first child in a few months so uh i would um at this point, uh, undo the balance of the weight balance in the boat. So, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. We're going to spin that in a completely different way in terms of congratulations on welcoming a new life into the world and not have anything to do with the weight balance of the dragon boat. <laughs> Sound fair? <laughs> oh my gosh. That is that is just absolutely phenomenal. And I can genuinely say that I've never had the pleasure of knowing um, anybody who did dragon boat racing before. So I feel like I'm exponentially cooler because uh, I know you and your life accomplishments. So uh, thanks for being so awesome. I appreciate it. So moving away from your amazing international career in racing, um, tell us a little bit about your journey, about your story. Um, how did you end up with your kind of niche that you've been developing for yourself? And I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it away too early because I want you to be able to share with everyone how you got here. Sure. Um, so, I mean, everyone obviously knows I'm in emergency medicine and that was pretty clear to me from the beginning. Um, I was one of those uh, med students that went through all the rotations and proudly told everyone I was going into emergency medicine, no matter what rotation I was on and, you know, got some weird looks and along the way, but you know, I was, I was right. What can I say? <laughs> um, you know, what's surprising to me is where I ended up within the field of emergency medicine. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm really invested in operations and administration, um, which do not sound like the most exciting of subjects I know. <laughs> um, and it's, it is really surprising to me that I'm here because when I was a medical student and, and in residency, um, I was interested in things like medical education, um, you know, of residents and students. And then um, I ultimately actually thought I would just go into the community, uh, see a lot of patients and make a lot of money because um, that's what I was good at. Um, but, you know, fast forward five years and here I am in an academic career <laughs> uh, doing ops and admin, which uh, were not even on my radar, to be honest, uh, when I was a resident. So how in the world did you make that leap between point A and point B, because I, I will agree with you, ops and admin makes me break out in hives. Um, how did you end up there? Yeah, um, you know, it does that to most people. And my husband still doesn't believe that I like meetings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, so I was finishing residency um, and was looking for a job and was approached by the leadership at Temple, uh, who asked me if I wanted to stay um, you know, at Temple for my, uh, for my next job. 
And at the time, you know, even though I had in my head planned and to go to go into the community, um, I realized that I was really happy at Temple. You know, I really liked the people I was working with. I really liked the patients I was seeing. Um, and I felt very comfortable there. So I was excited about the opportunity to work at Temple. Uh, the caveat was that I had to, uh, to take this job. I had to also oversee the quality improvement projects for the residency. That to me was really daunting because I didn't know anything about quality improvement. <laughs> um, but I did know that I wanted to stay at Temple. Um, so I kind of weighed you know, the positives and the negatives and ultimately ended up saying yes to this job, uh, knowing that I would have to learn more about QI to be successful in that position. Uh, so I spent the next year, roughly, uh, my first year out as an attending, kind of teaching myself uh, quality improvement. I read like books on QI, as boring as that sounds. Um, and I got a certification in medical quality by the end of the year. Wow. That's an, I didn't know that that existed. What a huge accomplishment. Thanks. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, I was really looking for something to show others that, you know, what I knew, because uh, I knew that I knew the material, but I felt like it was important to be able to demonstrate that in some way. So that's why I ended up seeking out the certification um, and uh, testing for that and getting it. Um, so I spent, you know, the first year or two kind of overseeing this the QI projects for the residency. And it turns out I actually like QI. So it's something I continue to do now. I actually oversee the QI for the medical school. Oh, God <laughs> bless you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that, that did uh, kind of take a different, different direction there. Um, but as I was working at Temple, I found myself more and more working with the folks in operations, the medical directors and their um, assistant medical directors. And I found that I really jived with those people. So, you know, I think it's a little bit like when you're interviewing for residency or you're trying to find the residency that you like and you realize there's a group of people that you jive with. Um, I think the same is true with medicine. So I found myself gravitating towards the people in operations. Um, I liked spending time with them. We were interested in the same things. Um, and in doing that, I kind of realized that ops was where I wanted to be um, ultimately, not necessarily just with QI, um, although there is overlap between the two. Um, so, uh, I think at the end of my first year, uh, there was an opening, uh, that came up because one of the medical directors ended up leaving Temple kind of unexpectedly. Um, and my chairman, you know, offered the job to me, even though I was a very junior faculty. Um, I, I took that position and I've kind of been expanding on it ever since. And I've been incredibly happy, uh, taking on that medical director role and, and, uh, kind of ascending that ladder. Um, but I think I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I hadn't said yes initially to the job I was a little uncomfortable with um, and doing something, you know, kind of outside of my comfort zone with why um, and doing a good job with it, because I think proving that I could do that enabled me to get this other opportunity. And that's what I like to share with my residents is that you know, I encourage them to say yes early on uh, to things that, that come up, even if it's not exactly what they want, um, because if you say yes, and then you do a good job, you're much more likely to get the opportunity that you're, that you're really looking for. Uh, and you might actually find the added bonus of liking, you know, what you took on in the first place, which happened with me. I feel like we get that in um, that kind of advice quite frequently um, as it comes up on residency, graduation, and the very beginning of your career. Say yes to things, say yes to things. And I remember being a third year resident and hearing this exact same um, advice and kind of thinking to myself, but 
but what if I don't want to? Um, what, what if it's something that I really, really, really don't want to do? Do I still have to do it? And my one of my mentors at the time basically gave me the blunt answer of, yes, you do. And I was like, oh, okay, well, fair enough. I, I'm very good at doing what I'm told. Okay, I can do that. But it's amazing to hear that that same move for you has really developed into an incredible passion and an incredible chance to make connections and really build your brand um, within your department and within the hospital itself. Because like you said, even if saying yes to something ends up being not something that you're passionate about, now people know exactly who you are and what you stand for and the fact that you produce a good product, you know, I can actually get work done even if at the same time you're looking for your closest exit point. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's easier than you think you might think initially to offload projects. Um, so if you do say yes to something and turns out you really don't like it, you can get rid of that. Um, it's not like you're going to be committed to it for the rest of your career. Um, but I will add, you know, I think two, two caveats to the saying yes uh, one is that if you say yes, you should do a good job with whatever you said yes to, because <laughs> if you don't, then you're probably not going to get any other offers. Uh, and then the second would be don't say yes to too many things, um, which is also a mistake that I've made. And if you ask anyone in my department, I am potentially continuing to make. <laughs> um, but uh, you can't spread yourself too thin. Um, so you just need to be mindful of your own bandwidth, um, because if you say yes to too many things, then one of them is going to suffer. Uh, and then you know, that's the one people might focus on. So in you launching your career into this completely unexpected branch of essential emergency medicine operations, and with such a steep, steep, steep learning curve that was put in front of you, throughout this entire process, how have you learned to advocate for yourself? Because when we doubt ourselves as we are facing a steep learning curve, as we are taking on new jobs and responsibilities, sometimes it can be really, really difficult to bridge the gap into still appropriately advocating for ourselves. How have you managed to do that? Yeah, I would agree. That can be tricky to navigate. Um, I think two things come to mind. Um, I have been uh, fortunate to have a number of mentors and sponsors throughout my career. So both people that um, have given me personal guidance and been there to ask questions um, of and, and get advice from. And then also people that just um, promote me. You know, if, if a role comes up, they say that, you know, I think crafting would be good for this, um, which was very, very helpful. Um, in terms of advocating for myself, uh, I've actually never been one to shy away from that, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, even since I was younger, like in, in middle school or high school. And um, I feel very strongly that you know, if I've accomplished something, um, there's, there's no shame, um, certainly no shame um, in getting yourself recognized for that. Uh, so nominating yourself for different positions or awards um, as they come up. Um, so I think, you know, between both of those things, uh, it's been, I don't want to say easy, but at least within my department, um, definitely manageable to kind of navigate uh, this, this new area of, of ops and admin. Um, but I will add, you know, now most, most recently I've taken on a position with hospital administration. So as of last year, I also oversee capacity management for the health system. 
And this was a completely new role for me, um, both in the sense that I had never managed capacity of a health system before. <laughs> and uh, it's a completely different political landscape uh, when you're dealing with hospital administration um, in a health system with multiple clinical sites. Um, so that's been a little bit of a steeper learning curve for me. And I, I think more of a challenge throughout the year um, to, to advocate for myself and make sure that people know that I'm in this new position. Um, Cause there are times where I find that they still go to um, my boss, uh, the, the guy who oversees the, the, you know, the chief clinical officer for the health system. Um, Cause he was in that, in my role formerly. Um, so it's been a, a balance I'll say to make sure that people know who I am and what I can do. Um, but also acknowledging that uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of the role yet. So I'm still learning while I'm trying to get everyone else to uh, understand that, that I'm in this uh, new position. Man, and isn't that just the balance, right? So being able to have complete confidence in exactly what you do know how to do and in your skills that you have fought hard for, and at the stay, same time stay completely humble in knowing exactly what you do not know and need to learn um, for a new role. Absolutely. And that, that reminds me of something, you know, that I always tell the residents and that we learned in residency too, is, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help or ask questions. You know, I find myself, I have check-ins with my boss in that role and I'm not afraid to ask him for guidance because um, he's, he's been there before and I haven't. Um, but I want to be able to have that knowledge when I interact with all the new players in my role. So it's, it's been, uh, very helpful to have um, him guiding me. Um, but, you know, you can't let him do the role for you. You can't let someone else do it for you. You just need to be able to ask questions and then assimilate those into your, your own uh, ability to carry out that role. Absolutely. And I love how many times we hear um, on this podcast, the importance of mentors, the importance of people in our lives to to promote us and to offer us opportunities, um, to guide us, to lead us, to answer our questions. It's such a reassuring thing to know that that piece of advice that was always given to us in residency also plays out in the real world too. Yeah, turns out a lot of the stuff you learn in residency has implications down the line. <laughs> so for all of our resident and student listeners out there, yes, it does apply to real life. <laughs> We're both excited to inform you of this and sorry because, yeah, it does get harder. Yeah, everyone thinks it's easier on the other side. I, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, Crafton, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule in order to do this recording with us. I sincerely appreciate you sharing your story. And yeah, when you uh, next are going to the world championships in some place in the world, uh, let us know. Maybe maybe we'll all make a trip out of it. You can have a little cheering section on the sidelines. Oh, that'd be great. I think in the meantime, though, I'm going to have to convince you to get in the boat. Uh, to be continued. <laughs> so for everyone out there, thanks for listening. We will see you next time hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. 
Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.